Welcome to Lilac Wine, the podcast. On our last episode, Robert delivered a package to Abelia that contained a new disc for her Victrola, a jazz album by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And Robert and Abelia shared a dance, complicating things just a little bit. If you haven't heard that episode or previous episodes, I am releasing this novel one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. So all of the episodes are online. Go back and take a listen. A word of warning, this episode contains some language and violence. Discretion is advised. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, lilac wine. Chapter 25. Our country needs competent trained auto mechanics in the Quartermaster's Department and Signal Corps, the advertisement for the Michigan State Auto School in Detroit proclaimed. Billy looked at the photograph of hundreds of trucks waiting to see action in a field at Fort Houston in Texas and wished he were there too. Brad Abel was right. The Army needed guys like him. William, his father called from outside. Billy rolled up the August edition of Popular Mechanics and placed it into his back pocket as he headed for the open window. Yeah? Wayne Miles was wiping his dirty hands on a soiled cloth. Just fix James Eckert's tire. Gonna bring it back to him. There's a pan of dirty oil over in the garage. Can you dump it in the barrel for me? Sure, Billy replied. Are you taking the truck? Wayne's large mustache couldn't cover his grin. Nope. Gonna do it the old-fashioned way. And with that, he turned, pushing the tire with his hands. He looked like a kid trundling a hoop. Be back soon, he called as he disappeared out of view. Billy ambled down the stairs and into the late morning sun, stopping on the front porch. The light glistened through some remaining gasoline sitting in the tank of the pump standing near the curb, casting a shimmering amber shadow on the ground. They had just recently purchased the new visible pump, and his father believed that they would be getting at least one more in the coming year or so as the automotive end of the business continued to grow. Billy lazily brushed away a cyclone of gnats that swirled near his head and continued to the garage the words of the advertisement still echoing in his head. He couldn't afford a school, but did he really need it? He wanted so badly to get out of Lily Springs, perhaps enlisting was a way out. Surely his mechanical skills would keep him out of the trenches. He would have to lie about his age, however. He was still six months from 18. The reality of the situation was going to be a lifetime at this service station, he supposed. Maybe he could convince his dad to add and son 
to the W. Miles full-service station sign that hung above the garage door. He kicked an empty can of Johnson's carbon remover and leaned against the body of the 1916 Overland Roadster in for an engine knock and oil leak. He pulled the magazine from his back pocket and tossed it on the ground. No, this was not turning out to be a good summer. It had an encouraging start when Robert arrived in town, but things got steadily worse. He didn't see Robert much. They talked occasionally when he delivered the mail, but Robert balked at further invitations to go fishing. There wasn't much else to do in Lily Springs, and Billy didn't particularly want to risk a trip to Dubuque. He only wished that Robert were paying as much attention to him as he was to Abelia. Abelia, he muttered under his breath. He just didn't understand it. And now the talk in town was escalating. Apparently, Robert and Abelia were doing very inappropriate things the other day on her back porch. Rose was in the pharmacy talking to Ellie and a few other women when Billy came in to buy some licorice gumdrops with the remaining change from the purchase of soap and other sundries he made for his mother at the general store. And they were laughing and knocking things over? I hate to think about what they were doing, she said with a judgmental roll of the eyes. What kind of music was it? asked Flora Miller. Rose lowered her voice a bit. I think it was that Negro music they play on the riverboats, the kind that comes from the deep south. The rest of the women nodded knowingly. Not at all what would be considered proper music. It was probably voodoo music, said Henrietta Longhorn, and since she played organ at the community church, her observation came with a sense of authority. I've heard that voodoo music is used for all sorts of dark, evil things, like raising the dead and casting spells on people. Do you know anything about this, Billy? asked Ellie from behind the soda counter. No, ma'am, Billy replied. All of the women were looking at him with pursed lips. You'd be best to stay away from him, advised Lydia White. I don't think it's a coincidence that Art, rest his soul, died after he got here. Probably something to do with that music. It shortens the life, said Henrietta in a matter-of-fact tone. The rest of the ladies nodded in agreement. Billy paid for a small bag of candy, said his goodbyes, and headed for the door. Billy, called Ellie. How long is he going to be staying here? He stopped in the doorway. Don't know, Mrs. Peterson. Just be careful. Yes, ma'am. Billy pulled the drip pan from under the overland, his likeness rippling upon the dark surface of the oil. He stared at himself and blew. A wake cut through the slough, splitting his face in half before the ripples dissipated his reflection into tiny, glistening sparkles of light. He slowly lifted the pan to the workbench, being careful not to spill the oil when a car pulled up to the curbside pump, its engine sputtering to a halt. After wiping his hands on a rag, Billy walked from the garage. Hey, he called out to the figure standing next to the Chevy 490, his back turned, but cigarette smoke wafting above his head. No smoking next to the pump. The man flung the cigarette into the street and turned. Billy stopped cold. It took a moment for Pete Gorman to recognize Billy, but when he did, his pleasure was palpable. Well, 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 look what we have here, 
he said, almost singing the words. Clifford Jackman emerged from around the front of the car, pulling a cigarette from his lips and crushing it under his foot. Looks like this is going to be a good day, he said. Just thought we'd take a ride through Lily Springs. Almost missed it, actually. That's right, interjected Pete. I don't think this town exists on the map anymore. And look what we stumbled across. Billy took a step back. Wasn't expecting to find you, Clifford said, his eyes gleaming with the light. Just thought, what the hell, let's take a drive. And here you are. It's like a gift, replied Pete. He was flexing his fingers. Clifford spat onto the dusty ground. Billy took another step back. His mouth was dry. He could feel his heart wanting to explode from his chest, the beat echoing deep within his ears. Clifford smiled. What's the matter? Not happy to see us? Billy turned quickly and bolted for the garage. Although he had a head start, Clifford and Pete were close behind, whooping as if playing a game. Passing the overland, he flipped the pan from the workbench. Oil spattered the air. He heard a grunt behind him as the pan hit a body with a thud and then bounced off the car. It rattled like a snare drum as it hit the floor. Out the back door, he ran back into the sunshine. He ventured a look over his shoulder. Pete emerged from the door, wiping oil from his face as Clifford turned from around the outside corner of the garage, light reflecting from something clutched in his hand. In his panic, Billy forgot about the stump in the middle of his backyard. He hit it hard and was soon airborne, tumbling towards the clothesline, the laundry fluttering in the breeze. He landed on his shoulder and tumbled awkwardly. Trying to regain his feet, he felt a foot suddenly kick him back down on the ground. He smacked the sod face first. A hand grabbed the nape of his neck and held firm. Billy could smell the earth. He could feel the fire of that hand around his neck, the nails knifing into his flesh. Where's your boyfriend now, faggot? Came Clifford from behind. Please, Billy pleaded. He was lifted up by Pete, who quickly grabbed his arms, holding them taut behind his back. Tears were streaming down his face. What did you say? Clifford taunted, pulling the brass knuckles over his fingers. I couldn't hear you. Please, Billy repeated. Clifford responded with a blow to the face, spattering blood on the bed linen hanging on the line. Billy spat out a tooth, coughing. You need to speak up, Nancy. Couldn't hear you. With that, another punch. And another. Blood was spilling from Billy's nose, which was now set at a slight angle. He couldn't see out of his left eye. Clifford leaned in close to Billy's ear and whispered, hatred punctuating every word. I've been waiting for this day ever since I saw you and my brother back in East Dubuque. Your kind disgusts me. You must hate your brother, too, Billy said softly. Clifford answered with another jab to the gut. Don't you ever talk about him, he yelled. Billy was doubled over, unable to move or protect himself. He struggled, but Pete's grip was like iron. Clifford swung an uppercut to his chin and then nodded to Pete, who released Billy from his grasp. Billy fell to the ground, his soft sobs barely audible over the flapping of the laundry. Clifford glanced at a light yellow dress drifting in the breeze. He pulled it from the line and threw it down. Your dress is dry. Put it on, faggot. 
When Billy didn't move, Clifford kicked him in the side. I said, put it on. Billy struggled to sit as he attempted to place the dress over his head. Come on, Clifford laughed. That doesn't go over your clothes. Don't pretend you don't know how to put on a dress. Clifford looked to Pete, who chortled. Billy didn't move. Instead, he dropped the dress to his lap, unwilling to go any further. Now, I'm a little hurt, Billy boy. Can't undress in front of me? What, you don't find me attractive? Clifford kneeled down and grabbed Billy by the chin, turning his face towards him. I said, put on the dress. In a defiant gesture, Billy pushed the hand away from his chin and, with much difficulty, attempted to crawl away. Grab him, Clifford yelled. Pete seized Billy by the arms and ripped off his shirt, the welts and bruises flagrant amongst his light skin. Clifford held his legs, unloosened his belt, and pulled off his pants. They were able to get the dress over his head, and Pete reached into the sleeves to pull out his arms. By this point, Billy lay limp, defeated, humiliated. Now stand up. He struggled getting to his feet and had to be hoisted up by Pete. He stood, dizzy and swaying slightly. His mother's dress was speckled crimson. Now, don't you look pretty, Clifford said in mock admiration. If only your boyfriend can see you now. Yeah, where is that cocksucker? asked Pete. I've got some unsettled business with him. Billy turned in the direction of the voice, everything pretty much a blur. He didn't care anymore. The fear that he felt was gone. He felt empty. He felt alone. And for some reason, he was no longer scared. He was numb and just wanted it to end. Everything to end. Go fuck yourself, he said effortlessly. This was not the answer either of them was expecting, and it took a moment for Billy's reply to sink in. What did you say? asked an incredulous Pete. Billy's lip turned up in a smile, for he expected at any moment for it all to end in a flurry of anger, and then he would finally be at peace. I said, he declared louder this time, go fuck yourself. Although Billy couldn't quite see the expression, Pete's face twisted into an angry grimace. The pleasure of the taunting quickly evaporated and Clifford lunged forward, grabbing Billy by the collar of the dress and pulling him back down to the ground. You are going to wish you never lived, he scowled. A metal click echoed in the backyard as the breach of a shotgun closed. Let him go, Wayne Miles yelled leveling a double barrel in Clifford's direction. He stepped from the garage an inch forward, the stock of the gun against his shoulder. It took a few seconds for them to recognize that the situation had changed. Looking down the barrel of a 16-gauge, Clifford let go of Billy and showed his hands, resisting the urge to place them above his head. The color quickly drained from Pete's face as Wayne Miles approached. 
Billy looked up. His father stepped into view, eclipsing the sun. He looked bigger and more powerful than he had ever seen him. If you lay one more hand on my son, I'll kill you, he said. Billy slowly lifted himself from the ground. He could see his father's arthritic hands clutching the barrel as best he could. You all right, William? he asked. Billy nodded in the affirmative, suddenly feeling a bit more alive. He stood as tall as he could, his face throbbing. You best get off my property right now, Wayne said. Pete looked nervously to his companion. Let's get out of here, Cliff he said. Clifford spat defiantly onto the grass, just barely missing Billy's foot. With hands still raised, he began walking towards the car with Pete following in tow. Billy staggered a ways behind as they made their way to the front of the house. About ten feet from the Chevy, Clifford turned and with a smirk said, You know your son likes to fuck men, don't you? Wayne Miles answered with a pull of the trigger. Smoke and fire erupted from the barrel of the shotgun, sending Clifford and Pete diving for the dirt. Pete looked up at the gaping hole in the canvas top of the Chevy. Hey, that's my dad's car, he cried. From the barrel wafted a thin lace of smoke. Wayne was pointing it directly at Clifford's head. You say another word, he said, and I'll blow your head off. Pete scrambled to the car starting it even before Clifford lifted himself up from the road, his face layered in dust. Billy noticed a dark stain in the crotch of Clifford's pants. I don't think we have enough gas to get back, panicked Pete as Clifford pulled himself into the passenger seat. Just get out of here, he replied. The car lurched forward, kicking up dust, the engine straining as Pete quickly shifted gears. As they turned onto the street, Clifford shot them a look. Wayne Miles had not yet lowered the gun, but tracked the car as it drove away. Billy half expected, half hoped, he would shoot again. The two stood silently. The car could no longer be seen, the rumbling of the engine becoming fainter as it made its way past the triangle. When it could no longer be heard, Wayne lowered the gun, painfully flexing his fingers. Dad, Billy said his eyes beginning to swell. Without so much a glance toward his son, Wayne turned for the house and climbed the porch. Your mother is going to be home soon, he said, his voice tinged with contempt. Get out of that dress before you disgrace me even further. The screen door slammed shut his mother's yellow dress fluttering in the light breeze. Billy fought back the tears, suddenly feeling more alone than he had ever felt before. Hopefully that was unexpected and a little shocking. It was for me. I had no idea when I sat down to write that chapter that that was going to be the direction that it went in. 
Um, but that's just the way it goes when you have an idea. For me, it's what point of view I'm going to be writing from when I sit down at the computer to write. And I knew I was going to be writing about Billy again. And I decided uh, that it would be time to meet Clifford Jackman again. The last time we heard from him was back in chapter 14. And really, when I wrote chapter 14, I wasn't even sure if that was going to be necessary, really. But I needed something here. I needed to begin to change the tone of the novel. I mean, in the last chapter, we had a billion Robert Shara dance, and it's been kind of at a pace that you would expect from a small town. But then I wanted that kind of gut punch. So I sat down to write Billy. And Billy, as I had mentioned before, was never a character that I expected to turn into the character that he is at this point. He was going to be a secondary character. But I really enjoyed writing him. And I really enjoyed having this voice here in Lily Springs of somebody who really doesn't belong in Lily Springs, doesn't want to belong in Lily Springs. And so Billy just kind of grew. And initially when I wrote the very beginning, when we first are introduced to Billy in that very first chapter, when they're all sitting around listening to Owen screams and he goes off to help try and find the cause of those screams, I I didn't have any intention of making a gay character. And in subsequent chapters, that was really never the aim. And then chapter 13 and 14 happened. And that's when that began to change. So I had to do a lot of research. And of course, it was not something that was as open as it is today. And I can't imagine really what it must have been like living in a small town or really in any town at the time. I mean, we've got a great amount of intolerance today. And so when you go back 100 years, that intolerance doubles, it you know, it triples. So I I had to research, you know, slurs, homophobic slurs. And interestingly, the 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 F word as I'd like to say it, it's, you know, the word faggot um, was something that was just coming into use at that time in that manner in the United States. So characters would have said it. And of course, the term Nancy is something that I came across too as a derogatory slur as well. But what I really wanted to highlight here is the difference at the time between rural America and urban America. And that's really the whole crux of the 1920s, you know, that kind of difference in attitude. And so I am needing a push here as these characters are going to be leaving Lily Springs. Now, even though in the last chapter, a billion Robert are sharing a dance, it's kind of a nice moment, but the underlying thing that is going to be happening is that people aren't going to tolerate Robert and Abelia, and they're not going to tolerate Billy 
And so Lily Springs is not going to be a welcoming place. At this point, they they tolerate Abelia, barely. They don't really include her in stuff, and she kind of keeps to herself. But that's all going to change. And eventually, we're going to get the action moving back to Chicago. And so this here, right now, this chapter is actually the last chapter that I had written. So I'm at the point where I stopped writing, when life kind of got in the way a bit. And the whole purpose of this podcast was to kickstart the writing for me. I was planning on writing chapters as we go and release them, kind of doing this novel in progress in real time. And I would still like to do that, but again, life has gotten in the way. I'm back at work, I'm teaching, and I've got a couple new preps, so that's taking up some time. And I've got some other projects on my plate. I'm working on another movie And so I'm going to have to start editing that soon, and I may be able to balance that and this for a little bit. But I see this chapter as an end to season one. And so we're going to go on hiatus a bit as I kind of organize all these projects that I have in my life and then come back a little bit down the line and continue releasing chapters, releasing episodes of this podcast. So for those of you who have been with me from the beginning, thank you, thank you, thank you. I have a small but dedicated group of people who have been with me from the beginning, and I completely appreciate you hanging out with me, you know, listening to me read this story, and some of the chapters are okay, some are good, some not so good. It's rough in some areas. I appreciate you sticking with me through my accents and my attempts at dialogue, at least changing my voice somewhat for the dialogue. If I had the money and I would do this again, I would hire actors and turn it into an audio drama, but that's not going to happen. But that would have been a cool uh, thing to do. But I just kind of always envisioned this as kind of uh, an audiobook with the author reading it and then a dialogue with people who listen. Over the months that I've been doing this, I have gotten some comments, but not that many. So if you could, I would love to hear from you for those of you who have listened from the beginning. Just let me know what you think. You know, both the good and the bad, I could be reached at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. Let me know of what you think and what you would like to see as we go forward. Please sign up for our newsletter on our website, lilacwinenovel.com, and I'll keep you up to date on the things that are happening and when we get some new episodes out. So I would absolutely love to hear from you all. And if you get a chance and you know anyone who likes novels like this, historical novels, next time around there's going to be more World War I stuff because that is looming in the future too. Uh, We also have Robert and Abelia's dinner that they're going to share. 
And yes, there's going to be some lilac wine at that dinner. And some things are going to happen that's really going to get the town turned against her and more so against Robert. And all hell is going to break loose in this last chapter as kind of a harbinger of things to come. So thank you once again. Uh, We're going on a break. And until next time, we'll be seeing you in a little bit. So again... Let me know what you think. Take care and see you soon. Lilac Wine is written by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We can be reached via email too at comments at lilacwinenovel.com. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Thank you for listening.